We are continuing our series this evening, Heaven is Our Eternal Home, with a message focused on life in the new heavens and the new earth. And I've given you Psalm 90 in the first two verses as our starting point, but we're going to be covering a lot of ground with a number of different scripture passages, as I've been doing all along through this study, trying to look at the broad scope of scripture and all that the Bible has to say about uh, eternity and heaven and what we can expect and anticipate. Uh, we have covered now eternity past in the heavens. We looked at the concept of heaven in the Old Testament along with the importance of the body and the soul. Uh, what happens to believers at death and what we can expect when we depart this life and enter into the next. Characteristics of the present heaven in what we would refer to as the intermediate state, then the return, resurrection, and judgment followed by the millennial reign of Jesus, the new heavens and the new earth broadly, uh, focusing in then in a more narrow way on the new Jerusalem, and then last on the new earth. Uh, and We looked at how the new earth is going to be restored. When it's restored, it's going to be filled with the glory of God. It's going to be a place that will be peaceful and productive and will be a lot like Eden in God's original creation. We also covered a few practical matters about life on the new earth and how we're going to retain the essence of who we are forever, who God created us to be in his image and the likeness that we have of him and who he has uniquely made us to be. We thought about how there's going to be work on the new earth as well as rest, and we'll have places to live because God has promised us that, and there will be eternal relationships in Christ, in the family of God that will be different and at a higher level than anything we've ever known before. Paul Benware said God is going to do in the eternal state what he originally intended to do in the original creation. Mankind was created to dwell on this earth, and that's where he will dwell in the eternal kingdom of God. And this would suggest that in eternity, as in the original creation, man will be involved in various kinds of meaningful activity, learning, and serving the Lord. So as we've thought about the new heavens and the new earth, we thought about it more generally and then again more specifically. But I want to go further down this road tonight and focus in on what life will be like in the new heavens and the new earth. And we begin with Psalm 90 in the first two verses, and this is what the scripture says, Lord, you've been our refuge in every generation. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. I want us to think for a moment about this phrase, from eternity to eternity. So there was never a time when God was not, and there will never be a time when he will not be. We have a starting point when God gives us life and he calls us into being, but we will not have an ending point. He created us for life with him, to be with him forever. But the only way that we have that eternal life is through faith in Christ. And we have the hope because of him. 
God has been our dwelling place. He is our refuge. He is our protection, and he's been that since creation, and he will be so eternally. So the question before us in this particular segment is, what will we do for eternity? If, in fact, we're going to live forever with God, what will we do for eternity? Now, there's a lot of misconceptions about the future. We've already covered a number of those, tried to dispel some myths and some improper understanding that people have. But I want to do that even more so as we think together tonight. And I read a quote here from John MacArthur. He said, in heaven, we will not spend our time sitting on the edge of a cloud and playing a harp or in picking flowers in a massive celestial garden. We will be busier than we've ever been, yet we'll do perfect work and never grow tired. We will each fulfill the inheritance God has given us and yet rest at the same time. God has built into human nature a drive to accomplish a goal and an objective. So what will we do for all of eternity? Well, first of all, I want to show you that we will worship. We will worship. Now, there are previews of the intermediate heaven that reveal to us what present worship looks like. Revelation 4 in verse 9 and 10 says this, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. We're given this vision of heaven being a place where angels and living creatures and elders are pictured surrounding the throne in worship. And collectively, with loud voices, they are saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Revelation 5 and verse 12. So what we know is that at the heart of heaven and central to all of eternity will be the fact that there will be eternal worship of God both for who he is, just simply because his character, and for what he has done. He will be praised eternally for creating, redeeming, and sustaining. Randy Alcorn said, all that we do will be an act of worship. We will overflow with gratitude and praise. We are created to worship God. There is no higher pleasure At times, we will lose ourselves in praise, doing nothing more but worshiping him. I also point you to Revelation 22 and verse 4, where the scripture says they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. The pinnacle of our experience in heaven will be the joy of being in the presence of God forever. And not only being in the presence of God forever, but eternally belonging to him. The God who is immortal and invisible. God who is only wise in light, inaccessible, hidden from our eyes. I read in one commentary, they were talking about this idea of seeing God face to face. And they said uh, in ancient Persia, it was said that there were only seven men 
who saw the king's face. Meaning that there were only seven men who had unrestricted access into the immediate presence of the king. Now I want you to think about this and let's make a comparison here. When we're in our glorified bodies, we will be able to do what Moses in his earthly body could not do and what we in our earthly bodies cannot do. You remember Moses asked the Lord, now show me your glory. And he received an answer to his request. He was told when my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. And then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Exodus chapter 33. But in heaven, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 89 and verse 15, we will walk every day in the light of his presence. Jesus said in Matthew 5 and verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Now evidently the angels are able to see the face of God in heaven. It says in Matthew 18 and verse 10, Jesus said their angels in heaven always see the face of my father. Can you imagine and even think about the fact that one day we will be in the presence of the God whom we've only known to this point by faith, but we will in that time experience him and be with him forever. There's also this idea that his name will be on our foreheads. I don't know exactly what that means or exactly how that's going to play out, but the reference connects us, at least in part, to the regalia of the high priest in the Old Testament. According to Exodus 39, they made a plate, uh, a sacred diadem, and they made it out of pure gold. And they inscribed on it a seal that said, Holy to the Lord. And they fastened a blue cord to it and attached it to the turban uh, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, what is the significance of a name? Well, the significance of a name is that it stands for a person's being and their character. So the plate on the turban of the high priest marked him as a holy man. He was to be dedicated to God. And what the scripture is indicating to us is that we will eternally have the distinguishing mark of belonging to God. And that's an amazing thought. Not only are we going to be in his presence, but we will be marked as forever belonging to the God who gave us life, who sent us his only son so that we might be saved, who sustained us through every hill and valley in life that we experienced, and he saw us as our good shepherd safely home in the presence of God, marked as belonging to him forever. But I think also as part of this worship, music is going to have a prominent place in eternity. Now it's very interesting as I introduce this particular part of this point that people have so many varied ideas about what they like or what they don't like or what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Well, let me just tell you, Not only does God love music, according to his word, but God loves variety in his music, according to his word. 
And when people get caught up in their own personal preferences that are typically tied to a time period of their life that they fondly remember, and they somehow say that that's the only kind of music and the only kind of time that was acceptable, they're essentially showing their biblical ignorance to the fact of the variety of music and the prominence of music in the worship of God. Revelation 15 in verse 2 and 3 says, They held harps given them by God, and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Did you know that music began by having its focus on God, the creator of the first creatures who existed in heaven? The angels sang at creation. God's people sang songs of worship. The first musician mentioned in the Old Testament is Jubal. And when you look at the scope of the different types of music in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, you'll find stringed instruments and wind instruments and percussion instruments and instruments that we're not sure what they are. There's just a whole bunch of instruments, and they're doing all sorts of things, making sound and making music on those instruments. There was an old hymn that I've never heard before, Uh, written by uh, Johnson Oatman entitled, They're Singing Up in Heaven. And I share the lyrics with you. He said, they're singing up in heaven such as we have never known, where the angels sing the praises of the Lamb upon the throne. Their sweet harps are always tuneful and their voices always clear. Oh, that we might be more like them while we serve the Master here. Holy, holy is what the angels sing, and I expect to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing Redemption's story, they will fold their wings, for angels never felt the joy that our salvation brings. Of course, music had a prominent place in the tabernacle and the temple. It's noted that there were 288 musicians engaged in the service of Solomon's temple in 1 Chronicles 25. Mentioned in the worship in the temple are cymbals and psalteries and harps and trumpets and pipes and stringed instruments and on and on. John the Apostle wrote in Revelation 14 in verse 2 and 3, And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing water and like a loud peal of thunder. This sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne. So evidently, heaven's music will be forever fresh and new. Revelation 19 and verse 6 says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, at the sound of, as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. So not only are there going to be a lot of musicians and a lot of music, but there is going to be a heavenly choir like we cannot even imagine. Music is going to be a central part of worship in lifting up praise to the throne of God and to the Lamb because he's worthy. And I think it's a good time for us in this life to prepare for the next. We ought to enjoy singing. We ought to enjoy lifting up our voices no matter how good or not we can sing. We should enjoy that expression of worship that, of course, should be theologically sound. It should be focused on God. He's focused on redemption and what he's done, but in all of it, we bring glory to him, and worship is going to be an important part of eternity. But then secondly, we will serve. 
will not only worship, but we will serve. The tribulation martyrs are pictured in heaven where they're before the throne of God. And the scripture says that they're serving him day and night in his temple in Revelation 7. It's interesting that the word serve is connected here uh, in Revelation 7 with the idea of worship and adoration. It has a similar sense in Revelation 22 and verse 3 where it simply says, his servants will serve him. Now, our service to God on earth is varied and it is diverse. And I believe that our service to God in heaven will also be varied and diverse. Much of our service will be connected with work, which we briefly considered. There are multiple references, uh, much of them in the book of Isaiah and also in Ezekiel. Um, It's somewhat challenging in those prophetic passages to see the overlay between the promise of what's coming in the millennial period and then what's coming in the eternal state. Uh, But nonetheless, there's a reference to the planting of seed in Isaiah 30 where it says, he will give you rain for the seed which you will sow in the ground and bread from the yield of the ground and it will be rich and plenteous. There's a reference to the cultivating of orchards In Isaiah 65 and verse 21, they will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. There's a reference to the raising of livestock in Isaiah 30 and verse 23. On that day, your livestock will graze in a roomy pasture. There's even a reference to fishing in Ezekiel 47 and verse 10 where it says, their fish will be according to their kinds like the fish of the great sea, very many. So we're going to serve God, and our service to God will be designed however he sees fit in whatever the new heavens and the new earth ultimately look like. And in our service to God, we will rule and reign with Christ. Now, we've already talked about this just a bit, but the Scripture says that we will reign forever and ever in Revelation 22 and verse 5. Some believers will evidently be actively judging and ruling and administrating in heaven on the new earth. Uh, Terrain, as the scripture speaks of, means literally to rule as a king. So the perfect rule of Christ will pervade the earth. Justice and truth will prevail. Only the righteous will live and work on the new earth. We'll all have glorified bodies, which will include new minds that will focus only on truth and righteousness. And the scripture says in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. So part of the segue of this is what's going to happen at the Bema judgment seat. Remember, we're not going to be judged for our sins because our sins were laid on Christ at the cross, but we will be judged and held accountable according to what we've done with what the Lord entrusted to us in this life. We looked at the five specific crowns that are mentioned in Scripture. We talked about whether or not our works will survive and uh, whether or not we'll be rewarded for them. So what that says to us is we don't understand all the details of how all that's going to play out. But it gives significance to our service in the here and now. Because if we are good stewards of what God entrusts to us here... And if we are faithful with the gifts, the spiritual gifts that God has entrusted to us 
here. And if we use the opportunities that God has given us here, then he's going to reward us eternally. And that means that our life now has meaning. And it also tells us that our lives in eternity will have meaning. And the list is endless as to what ruling and reigning will include, but it will be connected directly to your faithfulness in this life, and it will be connected directly to the eternal rewards that you will receive. We will worship and we will serve. And then third, we will fellowship. We will fellowship. Now, in our fast-paced modern world, we tend to neglect fellowship, or at least as much as we should focus on it. And the main reason that we neglect it, well, other than being selfish, is that we're limited on time. I mean, many of us are just getting by. We're trying to manage our vocation, and we're trying to manage our family, and we're trying to manage all the things that are swirling around us. We're, we're serving the Lord as best we can through the work of the church. And when it gets to the end of it, we feel like we don't have the time that we want. But you know what we're going to have plenty of in the future? Time. We're not going to be limited. And we're not going to feel busy in the sense that we're going to run out of time in whatever it is that we're doing. That's not going to be the case in the future. Now, Jesus set the tone of what eternal fellowship will be like. He said in Matthew 8 and verse 11, Many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what stands out to you about this notation of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What should stand out to you is that they were family. So they're envisioned in heaven and others coming from far and wide, from every direction, And of course, we think about the marriage supper of the Lamb. We think about the feasting that will take place in heaven. But what we note here is that family that begins on earth does not terminate in heaven. We talked about how our relationships will be different. They'll be at a higher spiritual plane than they are in the moment. But the reference reminds us that there is going to be a reunion in heaven There's going to be fellowship in heaven. There's going to be eating together in heaven. There's going to be enjoying one another's company in heaven. And our family relationships in Christ are going to last. They're not going to end. They're not going to be terminated in that sense. It also tells us that friendships that begin on the earth are not going to terminate in heaven. Now, Obviously, our eternal family is going to be greatly expanded from our earthly family. Um, Word came to Jesus, you remember, that his mother and his brothers were looking for him. And you remember how Jesus responded? Mark chapter 3, he said, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking around, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So we're going to be family, and we're going to have a great big expanded family, and the relationships that we've had on this earth are going to carry over if we are in Christ, and our relationships are going to be free from impure motivations, from selfishness, from a lack of time, 
All the things that we would think about would, would be negatives toward our relationships. There's not going to be brokenness. There's not going to be separation of friendships or families. We're going to be one in Christ. There's a man by the name of Richard Waitley, who was the Archbishop of Dublin in the 19th century. And he wrote this. He said, I am convinced that the extension and perfection of friendship will constitute a great part of the future happiness of the blessed. A wish to see and personally know, for example, the Apostle Paul or John is the most likely to arise in the noblest and purest mind. He said, I should be sorry to think such a wish absurd and presumptuous or unlikely ever to be gratified. The highest enjoyment, doubtless to be blessed with, will be a personal knowledge of the great and beloved master. The fact that we will have fellowship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We're going to be blessed with a great big extended family with a greater fellowship than we have ever known before. But the greatest part of our fellowship will be fellowship with Christ himself. You remember what John wrote in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2? He said, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared uh, what we will be. We know that when he appears, listen to this, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Think about it. We will be in the presence of the glorified Christ and we will experience love like we've never known, joy like we've never known, gladness, happiness like we've never known. And the disciples, they lived and ate and walked and journeyed with Jesus and ministered with Jesus uh, for some three years. But the promise in eternity is that the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. Revelation 21 and verse 3. We're going to worship, we're going to serve, we're going to fellowship, and then we will experience fulfillment. Now, fulfillment is a state of completion or realization of hopes and dreams. Now, let's just be honest for a moment. Maybe you're living the dream and, and you feel like your life is completely fulfilled. Maybe you started out at, at the outset of the whole thing as a young person and and you put all your goals in place and you had a map of where you were going to go and what your relationships were going to look like and how your vocation was going to shape up and what kind of resources you're going to have. And, and you figured you're going to have health all the way through and there wasn't going to be any significant loss and you are just absolutely fulfilled. I doubt that's the case, but maybe somebody's an outer liar uh, or a liar in general. Uh, but at any rate, we all seek fulfillment, do we not? We want to feel like what we've done in life counted. We want to feel like that we weren't here for nothing. So as best we can, we live in our relationships in a way that we can honor God. We try to serve him with our gifts. We do our best uh, to, to be uh, successful in whatever vocation that he puts us in. And what are we looking for in all of that? We're looking for fulfillment. There's senses of accomplishment that go with that, uh, recognition, other things that go along with it, but we're looking for fulfillment. And fulfillment is a state of completion or realization of your hopes and your dreams. 
But here's the reality. In a sin-fallen world, life remains difficult. There's suffering, there's sadness, there's disappointment, there's loss, there's separation. And here's the thought that came to my mind about this today. Every day in heaven will be better than your best day on the earth. I want you to think about the best days that you've had in your life. It could have been a big milestone, maybe when you completed uh, some aspect of education that you celebrated, or, or it could have been when your children were born, or it could have been uh, a marriage, or some major event in life when you got saved. All those things that we think about, man, that was a good day. That was a fulfilling day. Now I want you to think about how every single day in heaven, what we might call an ordinary day in heaven, is going to be better than the best day on earth. Heaven will be a place of unending joy. Isaiah 51 in verse 11 says, Believers will come with joyful shouting to Zion, and everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing, will flee away. There'll be health because there's not going to be any sickness. There'll be security so we don't have any fear. There'll be perfection so we're going to be complete. All of these things are pointing us to the ultimate of what God is going to do as he finishes the good work in us. Now, What that does for us in the moment when we have those good days is make us especially thankful for the grace of God in our lives. It gives us a special measure of gratitude for what God is doing. And maybe it's on the worst days that you have. The hope that you have for the future gets you through until you have a better day and the circumstances improve. Now, I don't know if you've ever ever thought about it this way, but death is our enemy and death is our friend. Now, how can something be an enemy and at the same time be a friend? Well, it's an enemy because it's a consequence of sin. It came because of the fall. It came because of people's rebellion against God. And death is an enemy because often it's painful leading up to it. And all that death brings because it separates us from our families and it brings us to the end of our experience in this life. And all the things that we think about are negatives about death. But here's why it's our friend. Death is our friend because it ushers us into the presence of God forever. If we know the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50 says, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I referenced a book a while back by Erwin Lutzer, who was the longtime pastor at the Moody Church in Chicago. He's retired now. He's written a lot of good things. And one of the small books that he's written is One Minute After You Die. The One Minute After You Die book is intended to be both an encouragement to believers and also an evangelistic tool 
should you have someone that you're trying to share the gospel with and you want to give them an idea about what to expect and how to be ready. It's an excellent little evangelistic tool. But here's what he says in one minute after you die, in part. Death rescues us from the endlessness of this existence. It is the means by which those who love God are finally brought to him. Only on this side of the curtain is death our enemy. Just beyond the curtain, the monster turns out to be our friend. And then he gives this illustration. Aristides, a first century Greek, marveled at the extraordinary success of Christianity. And he wrote to a friend, If any righteous man among the Christians passes from this world, they rejoice and offer thanks to God. And they escort his body with songs and thanksgiving as if he were setting out from one place to another nearby. And then Lucifer says this, and so it is. At death, believers set out from one place to another. There's reason for sorrowing, but not as those who have no hope. Such confidence makes the unbelievers take notice when Christians die differently. What are we going to do for all of eternity? We're going to worship, we're going to serve, we're going to fellowship, we're going to experience fulfillment, and we're going to have an eternal victory because life is ours in Christ. Friends, that's a lot to hope for. Why would anybody not want to be certain that this hope was theirs? Why would anybody want to step out into an eternity of the unknown, having made no preparations, not being forgiven, with absolute uncertainty, not ready to meet God, who's the creator and the eternal God, when he tells us right in his word how we can be right with him and be certain that we have a home in heaven. I look forward to what life is going to be like in eternity with God. Father, we thank you tonight.